David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. We have a great interview with a man familiar certainly to folks in the Bay Area, Hall of Fame broadcaster Lon Simmons, who, when the New York Giants moved to San Francisco, was there waiting to interview Willie Mays. Lon also covered the 49ers of the Joe Montana era. And here is part one of our interview. So I went up there and talked to the general manager, Bill Shaw, and I said, well, I don't want to be a news director. I said, I, I don't want to walk into a, a new city that I know nothing about and be head here, news department. So what about sports? And he said, well, we're going to get into sports pretty heavily, but it's going to take a while. And so he said, uh, if we uh, get started, we'll give you a call. Well, he'd been with CBS in, in Los Angeles and was good friends with um, the guy who was uh, eventually doing the uh, uh, the Lakers broadcast, uh, and uh, so he wanted to get him, and he couldn't get out of his contract to come to San Francisco, or didn't want to get out of it. So they called me and and uh, said to come up, and I interviewed with him, and and I got the job at KSFO in July of '57. And they got the rights to the 49ers for the 57 season. And, uh, Bob Fouts was doing the broadcast on the, on the, uh, 49ers. And so I went to work for him for, uh, with him for a year, uh, doing the color. And then the next year he started doing the TV. So I took over, uh, as a play-by-play announcer for the 49ers. And there was, Everything was coincidence in my career that at the time that I was ready to go, it fell into place, and it certainly did for me to get to San Francisco and get the opportunity to work in the 49ers. And then that, that fall, the Giants said they were coming to San Francisco, the Dodgers to Los Angeles, and the radio station got the rights to the broadcast for the baseball. And only Russ Hodges came uh, west with him. So they needed another announcer, and being as there was no other candidate, and Casbo had the right, they put my name in, and I met Russ, and we got along, and so I, I started doing the Giants in '58, our first year in San Francisco. So did you have to do a crash course in the 49ers and the Giants in terms of the players and the history and all that? Well, not necessarily. Uh, I had followed sports all my life, and the amazing thing was that. When I lived in Southern California growing up as a kid and from all the time that I can remember, I was a fan of the New York Giants for some reason. We didn't have Major League Baseball in Los Angeles. We had the Pacific Coast League. But I was a uh, Giant fan, the worst, <laughs> worst kind. I was, uh, that was, that was my team. And Carl Hubble was my hero and 
then it went on to Willie Mays, and so uh, when the Giants came west, I probably knew as much about them as I knew about anybody else. What was it like calling games with your hero, Willie Mays? Well, he he's turned out and still is a great friend of mine. I was lucky that I made a lot of good friends on that giant ball club and on the 49er ball club, too, as far as that's concerned. To be able to broadcast for Willie was it was a thrill every day. He could strike out four times and still do something in the field that was impressive enough that the fans were happy they came there to see him play. And he was certainly uh, a, not only a great player, but a heck of a guy and a good friend. And, and uh, I enjoyed all the years I was with him. I remember when he was traded to New York, which was a great Great move for him. It it built his future because he was so big in New York that that he uh, ran to a lot of commitments that he would never have had in San Francisco, and it, it uh, secured his life after baseball. But when he his first game that he was playing for the Mets was against the Giants. We'd gone on the road back there, and he came out of the dugout. I was up in the broadcast booth. He came out of the dugout in the in the Mets uniform, and he looked up towards the uh, broadcast booth, and I waved him, "No, get back! <laughs> I can't, I can't stand it. You can't, you can't have that New York uh, uniform on." But anyway, that was the first game he played, and naturally, what he did is he hit a home run and beat the Giants that day. So uh, he was a great part of, of uh, as was Willie McCovey and Juan Marichal and Jimmy Davenport. Tom Haller, people like that that got to be my lifetime friends. And, and uh, the Giants, uh, I had a great experience with the Giants. And then uh, when they changed radio stations, I went over to uh, the Haas family, bought Oakland. I went over and did Oakland games for 15 years. And then when they sold to another, the Giants asked me to come back, and I came back, and I was with them for another uh six or seven years. Now, you broadcast alongside Russ Hodges, who is probably eternally known for the, the home run call that Bobby Thompson hit off of Ralph Branca. Uh-huh. How, how easy was it for you to partner with him? Well, we met in the, in the uh, winter in San Francisco before spring training and, and had a dinner and, and talked and, it's, and we got along pretty well then, but Russ was an awful easy man to get along with. If they'd have given me a list of names of a hundred names to pick who I wanted to start my broadcast with, uh, I could have never picked a better one than the one that I got by accident, and that was Russ Hodges. A super, uh, just a super broadcaster and a great man and unselfish. Uh, he did things for me that, uh, that, and got things for me that he, uh, only had to worry about getting for himself, but he immediately uh, took over as being someone who was going to help me, and, and uh, he certainly did. In fact, in 1960, on my birthday, uh, in July, Juan Marichal made his first appearance with the Giants, and I, Russ used to announce the first and second, and I'd take the third and Fourth, and then he'd go to the fifth, sixth. I'd do the seventh, and then he'd do the eighth and ninth. And so we had that 
schedule all, all along. But that day when I Marichal was pitching a no-hitter into the seventh inning. So Russ said to me, take over the seventh inning and just keep going. And I said, well, why? That was in 1960, my second, yeah, my third season. And I said, why? And he says, well, he said, this is your birthday. That's your birthday present. You haven't <laughs> announced the uh, no-hitter yet. And uh, uh, this is going to be your chance. Well, it turned out that Clay Dalrymple hit a pinch single off him. And, and uh, that was the only hit of the game. But anyway, it showed what Russ would do and could do and, and, and did do is that he took care of the guys that were working with him and he certainly did with me and he taught me the, the same feeling that I helped some announcers who were in their early stages as I went along and let them do things that, that they hadn't had a chance to do before simply because Russ had taught me that that's the way you're supposed to do it. When you joined the 49ers, I mean, they had a loaded backfield. You had, what, Tittle, quarterback, Hugh McElhaney, and Joe Perry. I think John Henry Johnson already been traded. What was that like? Well, when the first year, uh, John Brody uh, came out of Stanford. He and I started with the 49ers the same year, 1957. And they had Wyatt, Tittle, and Perry, and, and, uh, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they had, they had, Two quarterbacks that could play. Well, uh, Tittle got injured in the game in Baltimore, and Brody had to take over in that one, and did, did a good job. And it was obvious that he was going to be able to be their quarterback, and they got a chance to trade YA, and they did. And, uh, and Brody took over as the quarterback, and I don't know why he hasn't been elected into the Hall of Fame, because his numbers were as great as any of the, uh, quarterbacks in that in that era, and for some reason, they has never been put into the uh, NFL Hall of Fame, and I can't understand why that uh, that hasn't happened. But anyway, it was a fabulous uh, team with uh, with uh, Bob St. Clair and another good friend of mine. He was their All-American tackle, and and they 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 had a they had a good team. They just they just ran into some bad luck occasionally, especially against the Cowboys, and then in the one uh, semifinal against Detroit, where Detroit came back from a big deficit in the second half to win it. But it was there were a lot of remarkable uh, names on that team, and, and uh, a lot of, and and uh, Hugh McElhenney was one of the greatest offensive runners of all time, and so they had they had a Good, good, solid team, but they just fell one bit short every time of getting to the playoffs until uh, Walsh came along. Now, speaking of great names, was Leo... Leo Namalini was on that team, yes. Was that the toughest one to pronounce? Can you say that three times in a row without tripping over your tongue? What, Leo Namalini, Leo Namalini, Leo Namalini? I guess you can. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was... He was uh, he was a character. He he participated in the uh, in wrestling in the off season and and uh, was a, a heck of a, a player and and uh, another nice guy. But he he was uh, he was one of the he was one of the top game the top men in football and and they had they had just a bunch of them that were that were really good. Do you agree that your most famous call was when Jim Marshall went the wrong way? 
Well, it was one that gets played more often, I guess. And it was sort of interesting. And the funny part was, I knew the minute he picked it up, that he was going the wrong way. I mean, he was going to go the wrong way. Because it was so obvious when he picked it up. And then the 49er center was running behind him. He was running along the sidelines of the Minnesota sidelines. And, and they were yelling at him to, to go back. He thought they were yelling at him because he was going to score a touchdown. And when he, uh, when he, uh, went into the end zone, the 49er, uh, center grabbed him, shook his hands and thanked him because, uh, they got a, they got a, uh, safety out of it. But the funny part was he wound up to be the hero of the game anyway because he made a, a sack the quarterback for a fumble and the fumble was picked up by, uh, by Minnesota and run in for a touchdown, the winning touchdown in the game. So he, he came back from, from that uh, bitter pill to uh, having having a sweet one. Now, Game 7 of the 1962 World Series, Willie McCovey hits a line drive with two out in the in the ninth. Did you think that was going to be a base hit? Well, it was too fast to know it was going to be a base hit. It was a line drive, and, and then uh, Richard was there with, with the glove and caught it, so it was bang, bang. But it was an interesting thing about that. The two quietest car uh crowds I've ever heard came about in the same year because the 40 of uh, the uh, Giants won uh a best of 3 playoff with the uh, Dodgers to get into the World Series after they tied in the regular season and that game was played down in Dodger Stadium the Giants came uh, the three game uh, second of the three games was played there and in that last game the Giants came from behind to get the winning runs in the ninth inning and I had to go down to do the post-game show. And I went through the crowd, and the people were all sitting there, just sitting there. They couldn't believe that the season was over, the playoffs were over, that they'd lost. And there wasn't a murmur going through the crowd at all. They were just stunned. And that was the same thing when the when uh, McCovey hit the line drive. The Giants stadium was quiet. They said, no, it can't end like this, you know. And, and it, was, it was two of the – two – Two home crowds that have been silenced like none others I'd ever seen. You called the 1989 World Series. What I remember about that was that earthquake. What was that like? Well, it was like every other earthquake I'd seen, except for the fact that uh, I was involved in a lot of earthquakes from the time I was uh, about nine years old until then, and and it didn't didn't bother me. But it, the thing was that it. It lasted so long. It lasted longer than most of them had been in. And I thought, well, maybe this is the big one they've been talking about. But uh, there were interesting things. Some of the people that were there, had, that I was looking at the booth next to me, and they didn't know what to do. There was a, there was a, it was a, not a broadcast booth. It was a booth where they had uh, spectators in there, and they were, <laughs> they were running around. They didn't know what to do, and and. Uh, uh, Bill King and I were doing the broadcast, and eventually, what we had to do, our uh, our transmitter was put out at the station. We had to stay on the air after the after the game to to keep to keep KSFO on the air, and there wasn't much of us to talk about because we were in a <laughs> we were in a closed stadium, and everybody else had gone home, and we were sitting there. Trying to figure out a broadcast that would be interesting to somebody about uh, about the uh, 
earthquake without having any special information on the earthquake ourselves. And uh, but it was it was a surprise. There was no doubt about that. But the surprising thing about it, there were several people that were killed in the uh, when the uh, overpass over in Oakland fell. If there was only one car went over when uh, the the Bay Bridge uh, was had a section fall out, and it was right in commute time. But it was the Giants playing the A's, and everybody everybody was home apparently uh, watching or listening to the baseball game if they weren't in the stadium, and so consequently the traffic was really minimal. Uh, there's usually more traffic, uh, traffic uh, going on then at 2 o'clock in the morning than there was at that time at commute time in the afternoon. And it saved an awful lot of lives because had it, uh, had it been during the commute time, there would have been a lot more disaster to it. In 1965, those of us who were around then can remember Juan Marichal going after John Roseboro with the bat. Well, that's been blown out of so much proportion. Uh, Roseboro did not get anything, any uh, criticism, or didn't get any suspension. Marichal got a suspension that actually probably lost the pennant for the Giants. But what had happened is there had been an altercation earlier in this series. One of the Dodgers had swung his bat back and hit the Giant catcher, and so the the uh, Giants told uh, Matty Alou to. Uh, to go up and let his bat come back and hit Roseboro. Well, he didn't do it, but I guess Roseboro knew about it, whatever. But Roseboro, Sandy Koufax was pitching, and Roseboro said that that, that uh, Koufax was, didn't have guts enough to throw at somebody. Well, Koufax didn't throw at anybody because he threw it so hard he was afraid he'd kill him if he hit him. And he didn't have to throw at him. They were intimidated enough just by his pitching. So anyway, Roseboro said, well, if he didn't throw at somebody, uh, if, uh, if uh, Koufax didn't throw at somebody, he was going to. Well, Marichal was at the plate, and the ball got away from from Roseboro, rolled back behind him. Well, all Roseboro had to do is lob the ball back to Koufax or step aside and throw it to him, but he didn't. He threw the ball right at Marichal and nicked his ear. Now, see, nobody ever mentioned anything about that in that. Thing. But Marichal turned and said, so "What's going on?" And Marichal had the had the bat in his hand. Well, uh, Roseboro charged him, and Marichal didn't throw the bat down or put it away. He had it, but he didn't take full swings at at uh, Roseboro. He was pecking at him, like tried to keep him back. Uh, and uh, and one hit uh, it hit Roseboro in the forehead and caused a little. Uh, a little cut in his forehead, but Marichal got a, a several week suspension out of that, and and Rosebro didn't get anything. But had he, that ball that he threw, had it been a couple inches to the left, he might have killed Marichal because it hit him right in the back of the head. Lucky it wasn't Bob Gibson because who knows what Bob Gibson would have done to Rosebro. Yeah, well, Rob, yeah, well, Rob, uh, Bob Gibson didn't have anybody to have to tell him to throw at people. He did. <laughs> In fact, he, he, uh, when Jim Ray Hart came to the Giants, and his first appearance was a doubleheader, and the first game he drove in a run and, and, uh, uh, and 
got a couple of hits. And then in the second game of the doubleheader, Bob Gibson was pitching, and Jim Ray took a, a, a big swing at the ball and fouled it back. And the next pitch hit him right in the left shoulder blade. And he had to leave the game uh, and go. They took, they took him to the hospital to have x-rays. It just showed an x-ray picture of the ball in, in, the, in, the, uh, in his shoulder blade. It, it really caved it in and uh, left its mark. So Marichal didn't get to play again the rest of the year until the last series of the season was against St. Louis in St. Louis. Gibson wasn't pitching, but Kurt Simmons was pitching, and the Dodgers were, or the Cardinals were leading by a score of 13 to nothing, I think it was, or 11 to nothing. And uh, Jim Ray came to the plate, and it used to be then that if you got two strikes on a hitter, you knocked him down. What's the next one? And if you had 0-2, you, you, nine out of ten pitchers would throw one that would knock the guy, guy down and get him off the plate. But, uh, when you're, when it's a 13 and nothing game, you don't think about that. But, Kurt Simmons knocked him down, but he really knocked him down. He hit him right in the head with a pitch. And so, there Juan went, or, uh, uh, Pardon me, sometimes nouns and names escape me, but uh, uh, the the thing was that he, the, he was knocked out of the game, and uh, that was twice by the Cardinals in, in only two days that he played in the major leagues in that year. And Jim Ray came back to be an outstanding hitter, but that was that was the thing that uh, I don't know. I'm sure that, that uh, Simmons wasn't trying to hit him, but he was trying to, Bush him off the plate, but I know that Gibson was trying to hit him because he wanted to tell him, this is what you're going to have to face when you face me. And Gibson was that. Mays hit several first-inning home runs off Gibson and then spent the rest of the afternoon when he came to the plate running to keep from getting hit. <laughs> That's the way they used to play the game. Nowadays, it's it's a lot different from any of that. Well, yeah. when, when May when the Giants played the Chicago Cubs, and Leo DeRocher was the manager of the Cubs then, and he had been, Mays had been his pet with the Giants. But when he came to the Cubs, he had his pitchers knocked down. Mays was knocked down more than anybody I ever knew. He got knocked down every game. And uh, uh, so the Cubs would, the Cubs would uh, knock him down every time he came up there. But anyway, I was sitting in the dugout one day there in Chicago, and and Mays was uh, in the in the dugout, and so was Juan Marichal. And Mays said to Marichal, "How come you you know the the how come you don't knock down Ernie Banks because uh, her doctor me down?" And Marichal said, "Well." Well, uh, I don't want to knock down Ernie Banks. He's a nice guy. And May said, I'm a nice guy, and they're knocking me down every time I come up. <laughs> so it was, it was a little unfair that Mays was, Mays was pitched at as much as he was pitched to. When you called the football games, you saw a lot of great players play. Who would you say is the best player you ever saw? Well, that's pretty tough to say. I would, uh, late my career, I did, uh, was Joe Montana, and he had to be just about as great as anybody I've ever seen. And, 
I announced uh, I announced uh, uh, Jim Brown and and uh, um, announced uh, you know, someone they escaped me now, but I, I I announced I got a chance to announce all the top players, and I saw an awful lot of them that probably were were equally as good as each other, but all of them certainly uh, tremendous. But I guess that, that maybe McElhenney and uh, and uh, and then uh, Jerry Rice wasn't too bad. Jerry Rice, yeah. There was another one that was was, uh, and the funny part of Jerry, his first year had a tough time. He he dropped a lot of passes his first year, but he didn't drop any after that. And he was he was the most physically fit of any of the players I think that there's ever been because the the guys tried to do the same exercises he did and they had no chance. They tried it once. And they said, okay, you go to and do it, Jerry. I can't uh, I can't keep up. But that was what he was. That was one of the reasons he lasted as long as he did and did as well as he did. But Montana was he was. Uh, he was so unbelievable in, in how he performed and how he could how he could uh, do it. I remember there was there was below zero in Chicago in the, in the year that the 49ers won Super Bowl 23. Well, uh, for the championship game, uh, they played uh, Chicago Bears, and uh, uh, the bear the Chicago crowd was all yelling bear weather. You know, bear weather. They thought they were going to win because. The 49ers couldn't stand it. Well, uh, 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 Angel, the uh, Rice and uh, Rice was open all the time. He got took a long path for for a touchdown, and then uh, uh, they beat the they beat the uh, Blitz on another one that went for a touchdown, and and uh, it was just it was just amazing how they could handle. That cold weather, and, and still be as effective as they could with their own pitching game, or their own uh, football game. What was Bill Walsh like to deal with? Yeah, well, he was perfect. He, Bill and I were good friends, and, and but his first year, he was two and fourteen, and he he wanted to kill himself. And and I used to do pregame shows with him that I taped during the week. I taped twice do two tape jobs a week with him. And I said to him, Bill, look, this isn't your team. You just took over this team. It isn't any of your players in there. Uh, so you know you can coach. Don't, you know, don't get so depressed. Just hang in there. I said, eventually you're going to win. And I said, but let me tell you this. If you think you're in trouble now, wait till you start winning. Then you're really going to have troubles. <laughs> and so he called me later on when he was in the middle of going to Super Bowls, and he said, you know, you're right about one thing. He said, because after you start to win, they think you're supposed to win every game. And he was having a, he was having a tough time, but he operated under a, a good owner. Eddie DeBartolo was certainly uh, uh, great for the players and the coaches and everybody in the organization. He, uh, he did a remarkable job with that team. How many championships rings did you get from baseball and football broadcasting? I didn't get any. They didn't give. Uh, they didn't give the uh, uh, the 
he brings to the to the uh, announcers. Uh, I got, uh, and I didn't do. I only did one of the Super Bowls because when I went over to the Oakland A's uh, originally, I didn't get to uh, do the forty. I couldn't do the Forty ers because Bill King and I were working there, and Bill was doing the Raiders, and so he was away on the weekend. So I had to be there on the weekend to broadcast. But I've gotten uh, a two. I've got, I got, I uh, got, from the A's, I got a world championship ring, and from the Giants, two championship rings, so that is, uh, uh, that's pretty good. But the, the 49ers didn't give away the, the uh, rings to the players. And the fact was, I never wear the ring. I keep them and cherish them and appreciate them giving to me. But I won't wear a ring because I don't want somebody uh, there, uh, somebody's always going to come up and ask you, well, what's that? Well, it's a championship ring. Well, how'd you, how'd you get that? What position did you play? I didn't play any play. I broadcast. So I didn't want to answer all those questions. So I told them each time they gave me the ring that I wasn't going to wear them. I was just going to keep them and, and certainly appreciate the fact that they gave them to me. All right. Stay tuned to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com for part two of our interview with legendary broadcaster Lon Simmons. 